You are listening to the Hospice Chaplaincy Show, a show where we talk about psychospiritual and psychosocial aspects of end-of-life care. And now, here is your host, Saul. Thank you very much for joining us on this episode of the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. I'm Saul Ebema. My guest today is Ron Greer. He's the author of The Quiet House, Reflections on the Loss of a Spouse. Ron was with us in the previous episode, and I had to bring him back. So, Ron, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much. It is so good to be with you. You know, we covered a lot in the first episode uh, in our conversation with you on the area of grief. But today I want to talk more about towards the healing and resilience. So what is the role of resilience in dealing with grief? One of the ways that I think about the importance of, of healing, of facilitating healing, is to have that attitude that we talked about earlier. I had mentioned from the psalm, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, that uh, we talked about the valley part having to do with mustering the courage to engage the mourning of our grief. And then the second part is, the, the first part had to do with the word valley. The second part had to do with the word through about going through that, as I phrased it earlier, we don't take up residence there. We are in process. We're going through. And the the focus of the counseling that I do, the focus of the writing and the speaking that I do about grief has to do, and, and as I said in the book and in many of the talks I give, we are going to, to talk about death and dying, but our real focus is on life and living. Mm-hmm what we are going to be doing in our focus together and what I have done in the book, we talk, I talk a lot about grief and mourning, but it is for the purpose of working that through so that we can come out on the far side. The attitude to me is very important. I have, have often thought about this and, and I know with, with, Losses. If you have losses in your life, Saul, you would be in the same position because you also have a depth of experience with uh, with grief and mourning. I, I've I've thought of the advantage that I have in terms of knowing something of, of what that is about, and that advantage means that I know I'm going to be continuing through this valley. To the far end, I will always experience tenderness. I will always experience grief from the loss, but I am going to largely, I am going to substantially heal, even though the tenderness remain. That's only because the love was so great as we have spoken. What I, I remember one day, and this was a matter of weeks after Karen died, I was walking through our kitchen. And I look over, and here's this little plaque sitting on the counter. Karen had given me this plaque years and years ago, and the plaque says, you are my happily ever after. (laughs) And she was mine. So I was walking past this plaque saw that I have seen only a few tens of thousands of times (laughs) over the years (laughs) as I've walked past it. But I literally was stopped in my tracks, and I looked at that plaque. So this, again, this is several weeks after she died. And I read the plaque again, you are my happily ever after. And the question came to my mind, 
how am I going to be happy now that my happily ever after is gone? And I stood there by myself for the longest time, and I took a deep breath, and I said, well, I don't yet know, but I'm going to find out. And that conviction comes from that attitude that I have, and that is that healing is real. I am going, that, that emotionally, resurrections follow life's crucifixions. And that goes back to the word that you used, resiliency. I believe that I can heal, not by repression of the pain I feel, but by expression of it, by giving it a voice, by giving it, it, it energy, by giving it focus and letting the tears and the words flow, tremendously important. And this is where, prior to Karen's death, she and I were so on the same page. Oh, oh, let me tell you a moment out of out of Karen and my lives that was just, gosh, it, it was like it happened yesterday and it happened 40 years ago. This was about a month after our son Eric had died. And Karen and I were talking about our pain. And Karen said, this is word for word. She said, and, and again, less than a month earlier, we had buried our two-year-old son. And this is, this is the lady with whom I was married. She said about three weeks after then, we're going to make it through this, and we're going to have fun, and we're going to enjoy our lives again. Because if we don't, then Eric will not have been the only one who died. Hmm. Now, how powerful is that? Wow. 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 That, is, th- th- that is where our hope is grounded, is in that the healing is real. Hmm. We go from loss to grief. And then we engage our mourning, and then we experience over a long period of time, we experience healing. And then finally, we arrive at the new chapter in our lives. But again, these are not stages, but these are the kind of phases we go through. We are hit with a loss, which means then we feel the power of the pain of the grief, Mm. then if we choose not to repress it, but to express it, we engage the mourning, which then brings the healing, which then eventually welcomes us into a new and meaningful chapter of our lives. Mm. Now, one one, one final thought that, 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 that that triggers in me. I had a great life with Karen. Mm. Now I have a good life. And for each of your listeners, I bet every one of your listeners is listening to us, Saul, because they have experienced this powerful loss in their lives. And because their loved one was so precious to them, they experienced, I bet, the same thing I experienced. And that is that joy is now out of the window. 
it's gone. That ship has sailed. What I then realized is, all as the healing began, is I have lost this phenomenal relationship in my life, but I still have all the rest of my life. I had a great life, but I still have a good life on which I now can build. And I will not be, and Karen would be the first to amen this, I will not be defined by that one loss in my life. I will not be defined by her death. I'm going to move on. As Alfred Lloyd Tennyson said, though much is taken, much abides. And though I have lost this precious relationship in my life, I then, as I heal, am looking around at the rest of my life that is still there, and I am building from that foundation the rest of my life. I think it's, that is the best posture, you know, to deal with grief, especially significant loss. Some people somehow feel guilty that they are carving out a life after the loss of somebody they love dearly. So how can somebody overcome that guilt? And where does that guilt even come from? Oh, oh, oh. To, to, to me, it's from the, the, the magnitude. Oh, what a wonderful question. It's from the magnitude of the importance of the relationship. And I have had, so have you. I, I, I know you're going to nod when I say this. <laughs> I have had countless, countless, countless people say to me, how do I dare be happy mm-hmm. now that my wife or now that my husband has died? And I remember so well. And I have had, again, so many people say to me the same thing. I remember so well, it wasn't literally the first time I laughed, but I was invited over to a friend's house. And Saul, I don't know about you, but I hang around some of the funniest people I can imagine. They are just, they are simply hilarious. I'm not one, uh, I'm not, they are, they are just the, oh, they have their senses of humor are phenomenal. I refer to myself when we gather, I'm simply the audience, you know, <laughs> and and I remember the first night that a friend of mine, several weeks after Karen died, a friend, and actually this was, was a handful of months after she died, but because of COVID is why I can date it more precisely, uh, had invited a group of us over and we had... Oh, my gosh, they were hilarious. They were hilarious. And I just laughed and laughed and laughed. And I remembered when I got in the car, the very thing that you were asking about, I got in the car. I didn't feel guilty, but I felt awkward. And I thought, what on earth was that about? I was laughing. Yeah. And Karen is still gone. Oh, my gosh, it felt so awkward. But I have had countless people say to me that they felt guilty. How can I ever laugh again when my spouse has died? It's like they're dishonoring their spouse. This is how I respond to them. No, you're not. If you want to dishonor your spouse, and I will pause, and then I'll say, do I have your undivided attention? Are you listening to me? I will say to them, okay, if you want to dishonor your spouse, then you never laugh again. 
Because for you to go forward and enjoy your life and develop this new chapter of your life, you're now dealt a new hand of cards to play. It's missing a tremendous ace that was in your hand. You're now dealt a new hand of cards, but I guarantee you, your husband or your wife, whoever I'm talking to, would want nothing more than for you to go forward with your life and have the most meaningful life you could ever have. Hmm. It was it was an interesting thing in that regard. You just reminded me of it yeah. in your question. Yeah. Over the last year of Karen's life, she knew she knew that that she was was dying. Over the last year of her life, she increasingly would use the phrase, don't look back. Don't look back. Now, she didn't mean by that, don't look back to our wonderful memories of our marriage and our family. Gosh, we talked about our memories all the time. She meant live in the present. Show up in the present moment. And I guarantee you, though she never said it this explicitly, Saul, I guarantee you what she was saying to Ron is, Ron, I'm going to be gone. Hmm. I'm going to be dead. I will die in the next few months. I know I will. She didn't say it this explicitly. She she was saying, I will be gone and do not even think of living in the past. Hmm. You live in your present and you point to and you build for your future. Man, it looks like Karen powerfully modeled for you how to die with grace, but also how to grieve with grace and bounce back and continue to live the rest of life that you have. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And and I am I am honoring what I know she would want and it's it's what I would want and it is what I feel led to do. And that is to look at the new, as, as I use the metaphor, I um, look at the new hand I'm holding, and I then decide how best do I then go forward from here? And how do I live that life with purpose and meaning? And as my healing continues, even with joy, because purpose leads to meaning, and that leads to a life that is filled, that, 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 that is engaged with fulfillment, and then that leads to joy. And I, I can still have a good life as I then move forward without her, but with her spirit and with her memory that will always go with me and will always enrich me. With that, we'll take a little break. Again, our guest is Ronald J. Greer. He's the author of The Quiet House, Reflections on the Loss of a Spouse. We'll be right back. Continuing to be a leader in the field of spiritual care at the end of life, Hospice Chaplaincy provides high-quality professional development webinars that will improve your practice of spiritual care at the end of life. Check out our latest webinars at www.hospicechaplaincy.com. I'm Sol and we continue our conversation with Ron. You know, I was listening to you talk before the break how Karen walked alongside you 
Yes, she was the one who is dying, but she really helped you process your grief. Those appeal you spoke about her hugging you and you crying for some time, but also her being comfortable talking about death, dying, and helping you with your grief after she's gone. I've been working in hospice now for over 18 years, and I noticed that some couples or families do not have that privilege, where if somebody's dying, the first thing you hear the family tell hospice is, don't tell mom she's on hospice, or don't tell my wife or my dad that they're on hospice. So there's no open awareness of death. And I feel like when the patient eventually dies, it affects their grief in, in an intense way because there was no openness around the awareness of death. So what are your thoughts around that? The first thought, I love your question because I think that is so important. The first thought that comes to me is that Karen and I were absolutely blessed by the fact that we were talking about it. Good gracious, there, there is nothing more important than, than uh, talking about these pivotal transitional moments in our lives that have so much, Im- not just importance, but so much depth of emotion to them. And Karen and I would talk about, about as she was dying, would talk about the kinds of changes that I would need to be making. And Karen would share things. We even talked a uh, year before or so before she died, if we wanted to move residences. And we talked about these things. And even more personally, we talked about what these experiences were like for her as she was dying and for me as she was dying, as, as I was losing her. And, and you, you bring back one, one memory as you asked that, Saul, that, that was of, uh, of much more pragmatic note. I just remember that moment I was walking down the hallway and Karen was in the laundry room and I hear her voice out of the laundry room. And she said, Ron, let me show you how to do this. She was in there sorting clothes. And (laughs) she was going to show me how to do the laundry. And I stepped in there and she walked through it step by step, sorting and measuring the everything, the settings. She did not say a single word in that moment about why she was telling me. And I didn't ask because we both knew. And a month Mm. later, Karen died. We talked about her living. We talked about her dying. And in the and, and, and in, in these little pragmatic ways, and I just think of that as being a little vignette of, uh, of how naturally we talked about it. And we didn't have to say why she was showing me because it was a part of what we had talked about regularly was the fact that she was, was going to be dying soon. But it was, and rather, it was something that did not need again to be spoken. But the times that we would talk about the fact that we had a limited time, and this is where those who don't, who avoid talking about it, I'm afraid cheat themselves, is because it then pushed us, because we knew time was limited, to remember those experiences together that we might have never referred to. But we would say, you know, remember the time that, and I can't believe that we did this, and what a wonderful that we chose to do that. 
we remember intentionally those experiences because we know we're not going to be there forever for those memories to come back to us. So we need to remember them and share them then. Oh, it's so important to acknowledge what's the, the, the limited time, especially as someone has entered hospice care, the limited time that is there and to take full advantage in order to share those marvelous experiences together yeah, and, and, and also to support each other along the way. Yeah. In your book on page uh, 109, you speak about grief after grief. What does that look like? There are two ways that I think about that, about when I think of the ongoing grief, when I think of the initial grief, that is that tidal wave. And I want to loop back to something that I had referred to uh, before about the scattered showers. The tidal wave of grief is what hits us at first. And there's, it, it's, it's constant. The pain, you wake up and it's the first thought you have in the morning that your spouse has just died. And it's the last thought that you have as you're going to bed at night. And it's most of the thoughts between the two. That is that initial grief, and it's absolutely overwhelming. Then as time goes by, then it's not constant, but it's consistent. Consistently, the thoughts of your deceased spouse come to mind, and the grief that comes with it comes to mind. And then that's the grief after that initial flood of grief. And then later on, you engage your new life and it goes from being constant to being consistent, the memories, to it being periodic. And then periodic, you go through your life and you're not thinking about it all day, every day, not all the time, but periodically those memories will come back. You'll walk through your house and you'll see the picture. You'll look over and you'll see that little plaque in the kitchen that I was talking about. You'll have these periodic memories. And then there are times that a smile will come to your face. At other times, a tear will come to your eyes. This is the grief after grief. You honor it. You honor the smile that comes to your face. Earlier this morning, I walked past Karen's picture, and I said to you, I simply said spontaneously, thank you, darling. And what I was thanking her was for being the absolute blessing in my life. And other times I'll walk past that same tissue picture and I will feel the tenderness and I may reach for a tissue, but I'll feel the tenderness. But I want to honor each of those emotions as they come because the healing is continuing. Now, as the healing goes forward, and I borrow this from a mentor of mine who spoke it probably 40 years ago, and I think there's so much truth to it. He he gestured in his in the in the air with his two hands, one hand high, the other one low. He said, as you begin the journey of grief, as all of us do, and you think of your loved one, you think of their death. That is what dominates your thinking early on, is their death. You think of them and you think of the fact that they have died. And then as time goes on, as the weeks turn into months and the months turn into years, and then his hands, the, the grief hand came down and the life hand went up. He said, and as time goes on, you think of your loved one and you discover something changed, something changed. 
that you're no longer thinking about first about their death, but you're thinking about their life. Mm. And then you think of their death. And I have found Valentine's Day. I have, have now had my fourth Valentine's Day without Karen. And I am aware of how acutely painful the first one was. And having experienced the fourth one, I am aware of how, as I would, was something would pop up and, uh, you know, in the news or whatever about Valentine's Day and, or somebody would mention something about it. I'm aware of how often when I was reminded of Valentine's Day, very positive memories of Karen and my life together came to my mind, as well as obviously the sadness that she's not here. Mm -hmm. But I realized how different it was from the first to the fourth Valentine's Day that I was thinking more and more of the joy of the life I had with her as distinguished from only focusing on the fact that she had died and she was no longer here. Powerful stuff. And um, then on page 112, you spoke about recalibrating. What does that look like? The recalibrating is going back to the the other metaphor that I used was in uh, in referring to being dealt a new hand in life. Mm. And recalibrating means that, and, and I want to express it differently this time, recalibrating means that I am not going to accept the identity of a victim. Mm. Have I been victimized in my life with different events? Of course I have. We all have. Life is filled with blessings and life is filled with sorrows. And the sorrows are the ways that we have been victimized. But I am not going to be defined by my sorrows. I am not going to live my life as someone that you should feel sorry for because I had lost my son earlier or because I have lost my wife more recently, I am going to recalibrate my life. I am going to take this new life. And as I said, this doesn't happen quickly after a loss because my, my, my focus, as you well know, Saul, from working with so many of us who, who go through these, these death experiences, my, my, my focus was totally on what I had lost early on and the magnitude of that. But it was only later as that healed and healed and healed, I began to reclaim the rest of my life and all of the blessings that I have, the relationships that I have, the family that I have, all of those chairs we refer to the empty chair of the one we lost. I've got a lot of chairs around that dining room table that are still filled, and I am blessed by them. Now, Ken, your question was on the recalibrating. How do I then recalibrate my life, given the blessings that remain, and given the loss that I have sustained? And I am going to play this new hand to the very top of my game. I am going to, and I guarantee you, there's a lady, her name is Karen Greer, my precious wife, who would fuss at me tremendously if I did otherwise. I am going to play to the very top of my game because, again, to use Karen's words, 
Because if I don't, then Karen will not have been the only one who died. Powerful. With that, we'll take a little break. When we come back after the break, we'll talk about how to receive support if you're grieving and also how to support somebody who is grieving. We'll be right back. If someone you know is suffering from mental health issues and could use some support, please call the National Alliance for Mental Illness Helpline. It is a free nationwide peer support service, providing information, resource referrals, and support to people living with a mental health condition. To contact the NAMI Helpline, please call 1-800-950-NAMI. That's 1-800-950-6264, Monday through Friday, or send an email to info at nami.org. I'm Sole Behman. We continue with our conversation uh, with Ron. You know, when people are going through grief, sometimes grief has a way of isolating people. In the first episode, we spoke about depression and anger, how, you know, grief can isolate you from people. Many people, in fact, avoid seeking for help. They become totally reclosed or just secluded into some space. How can somebody who is going through significant loss, like you, you lost your spouse, how does somebody like that reach out for help? Years ago, it was 10.30 on a Saturday night. Karen and I were still up, about to go to bed, but we were still up. 10.30 on a Saturday night, there was a loud knock on our front door. Well, you can imagine that got my attention. So I go to the front door, and there stand two county policemen. Saul, you can imagine that got my attention as well. (laughs) And one of them said, are you Ron Greer? And I said, yes. And then his voice softened and he gestured over his shoulder. He said, and he called the name, I'll call them the Johnsons. He said, the Johnsons across the street asked me to come over. They saw your lights were still on. And they asked me to come over and get you. Their daughter died this afternoon. And they wondered, they know it's late, but they wondered if you would come over and talk with them. And I told them, of course. Well, they uh, wanted to talk with me because they knew that I had also lost a child. That was their pastor had. I learned later their pastor had just been there. They they weren't calling me because of my profession. They were calling me because of my life experience. So many of your listeners are going to be in the same position that I have been in, and that is you will have people turning to you because they need you. They'll they'll be turning to you because they know you've been there and you know what it's like. They know you're not going to be giving them those trite platitudes that you are going to be with them. The thing I would encourage you to do is to first remember what you valued the most as you were going through your mourning and grieving. Let that be your GPS. And I know the vast, vast majority of you valued most the presence of the other person. It does not matter what they say. What matters is that they are with you. In fact, the least said the better from the one who is going to share the support. As uh, 
I have often said professional counseling is rarely needed for those who are mourning. What is needed is for someone who is caring enough to visit, kind enough to ask how they're doing, and then wise enough to listen and listen and listen. What is needed are not words. What are need what is needed is one's presence for them to be fully present. I, it, I think of a story saw from probably two months after our son Eric died. Our other son was also in the same accident and he was in a body cast and he and Karen were so he could not be in school for several weeks. Uh, and he and Karen were at home. I was back at uh, in my counseling ministry. I was back at the office and Patrick was in the den and Karen was washing up. She told me later she was washing up the breakfast dishes and she was in the pain that, you know, any mother would be two weeks after burying their two year old child. Mm. And she was in prayer in the kitchen and she was praying, God, please help me. Please help me. Please help me make it through this. And as she was praying that prayer, the phone rang. She answered the phone, and it was a dear friend of hers. And her friend asked with a tone of concern, as if she just felt something. She said, Karen, are you all right? And Karen said, I am now. (laughs) Her friend calling made all the difference. And anyone who is mourning knows that knows the power of the of, of of the contact knows the power of their presence and i invite your listeners do not ever underestimate the power of your loving presence what are your final thoughts uh well in in that spirit let, let, let me conclude with if you don't know in, in in talking about how to be supportive if you don't know them well send them a car If you know them moderately well, take them anything from your favorite bakery. If you know them rather well, go by and see them and give them a hug. If you know them very well, pull up a chair, ask how they're doing, and plan to stay a while. By our presence, we can touch their hearts. By others' presence, as we're going through our mourning Our hearts are touched. And if I may use another out of my Judeo-Christian heritage, use another metaphor that that I love, is that we then slip off our sandals. Because as we are sitting in the presence of someone who is loving us, or we're sitting in the presence of those who we came to love, we are on holy ground because this is as deep and precious as emotions get. And in those moments, and this is where the minister in me is coming out. So, and in those moments, we re-experience, and here I quote the words of Jacob as he spoke to his brother Esau, for truly to have seen your face, is like seeing the face of God with such favor. Have you received me? We need those holy moments with those who love us best.
thank you for inviting me to join you today. <laughs> wow. How can our listeners get a hold of you or even get your book? The book is available on Amazon. And if they would like to know anything more about the backstory, they can get on uh, my website that I have for my, my the several books that I've written. The website is ronaldjgreer.com. You know, I feel like just like your wife, Karen, modeled grief for you. I feel like in these two episodes, we've been in your classroom as you modeled how to grieve for all of us. Ron, thank you very much. Thank you. You honor me by inviting me on your program. Thank you so much, Saul. That was Ronald J. Greer. He's the author of The Quiet House, Reflections on the Loss of a Spouse. Our studio engineer is Brian McKenna, and I'm Saul Ebema. Thank you for listening. This show was brought to you by Hospice Chaplaincy, promoting excellence in spiritual care at the end of life. This episode was recorded at Audio Hive Podcasting in Julia, Illinois. You can find our podcast everywhere podcasts are available. If you enjoy listening to the show, please don't forget to give us your feedback by writing a review on iTunes. For more information, please visit www.hospicechaplaincy.com.